Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Mother's Day weekend to you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. If food is your fetish, well, then I am supplying the tools. Whether you're thinking about Sunday supper or planning your week's meals, I hope you love listening to this show. Every weekend, you'll hear recipes, tips, fun food discoveries, wine pairing advice, and more. There is inspiration here from our team of experts, chefs, and food lovers, and from cookbook authors and mixologists, health experts, sommeliers, and more, all to feed your soul. It's eating and drinking and learning and growing like you've never done before. So I hope that you will tune in and allow me to make every week more delicious. I am always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and you will find my shameless daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'd like to take a moment to say a very happy Mother's Day to all the glorious moms who nurture us and love us and feed us. We thank you. Uh, To my mommy, you are my first and always mentor. You put this radio show on the map, and I am very grateful to call you my best friend and an amazing mom. So happy Mother's Day to you. Okay, let's make today luscious, shall we? My mom, speaking of moms, made this beautiful batch of passion fruit curd this past week, and she gave me a prized jar, which, by the way, I am not sharing. I take a little demi-toss spoon to it, and I just take one bite at a time, then I put it away back in the fridge. Then I find myself heading back to the refrigerator, uh, going in for another bite. I happened to put a big dollop of it in my yogurt this morning. Um, We dip shortbread cookies in it for dessert last night. And uh, if there's enough left, I might make a little bit of trifle tomorrow. It's that good. So the question is, are you making curd at home? Although it's most often used as a scone topping, Lemon curd is surprisingly versatile. And I mention lemon curd because it's the most you know, generally thought of flavor for curd. You can use curd for just about anything though. Uh, In between cake layers to fill cupcakes, spread it on pancakes, mix it with whipped cream for cream puffs, make a tart. Uh, Of course, you could master the ultimate lemon meringue pie. I mean, why not? And it could be luscious lemon curd or delectable passion fruit curd or mango madness curd. Lemon curd is just the beginning. Now, I love how lemon curd is tart but rich. And as I mentioned, I have been known to eat spoonfuls straight from the jar. So for all intensive purposes, when we talk curd here, I'll refer to it uh, as lemon curd. Um, I'll use lemons as the base because I think that's what curd, uh, you know, is all about and what all good lemons aspire to be when they grow up. (laughs) We can thank the English, by the way, for the bright yellow curd with its tart, vibrant flavor, as well as for the wonderful notion of spreading it on scones hot out of the oven. So, Curd itself is made by gently cooking a mixture of fresh lemon juice with sugar, butter, and eggs until thickened. And it's very simple in its method. 
Um, but it's that satiny texture that we all aspire to. Now, there is a foolproof method for making the best curd, and that is to ensure that it's smooth. And there are lots of chefs that have different methods, but I'm all about the simple, go-to, quick, straightforward one. It's really very easy to prepare. There's one pesky problem, and that is you sometimes wind up with bits of cooked and curdled egg. And the goal, again, is that really beautiful uh coat your mouth with velvet wallpaper texture. Now, the problem that some great cooks have is especially common in curds that use whole eggs as well as egg yolks because the egg whites cook at a lower temperature. So they're more prone to coagulation and the cooked bits, by the way, don't ruin the flavor, but the smooth texture itself is what we desire. Now, if you happen to, in your first few attempts to make absolutely beautiful curd, find that the heat was too high or you didn't tend to it as much as you should have, then you can strain the curd to take those textural bits out and you will still have a beautiful finished product. But the secret to great curd so that it doesn't have anything but a smooth texture is low heat and constant stirring. Successful lemon curd is the result of battling forces that encourage and discourage the eggs to coagulate. So the goal is to have the eggs cooked through, but not too much and not too soon. So the chemical or scientific explanation behind it is that heat encourages the protein in the egg to bond and it does it with the addition of acidic ingredients. So when you dilute the eggs you raise the temperature at which the coagulation begins simply because it keeps the protein molecules physically farther apart from one another. Now, with the right utensils and technique, I guarantee you can make perfect lemon curd every time, even if you are not a culinary scientist. So these are my best tips to master beautiful curd before spring is over. I say use a heavy-based non-reactive sauce pot. Stainless steel, um, anodized aluminum, enamel all work well. The plain aluminum or unlined copper tends to react with the acid in the lemon juice. So I suggest you refrain. It often can take on a metallic flavor. Choose your pot wisely. You also want to stir the sauce or the curd itself constantly to prevent burning. This is what results in that creamy rather than solid curd. And you want to make sure that you scrape the spoon along the seam where the bottom and the sides of the pot meet because that area is always prone to burning. And then remember, boiling will cause the curd to curdle. So take your time, keep the heat moderate. And it will thicken eventually to the proper consistency. It reaches 170 degrees, but you can also know that if you take a spoon and dip it in the curd, take it out and you swipe your finger along the back of the spoon, the curd will uh, separate and you'll leave a clear path. And Remember too, the curd thickens as it cools. Now, curd lasts a few weeks in the fridge. And you should definitely try experimenting lemon, lime, grapefruit, blood orange, 
passion fruit, as mentioned, mango. And the curd itself, best in a mason jar, keeps about a week or so in the fridge. And if you didn't know, it freezes beautifully and it will last for a couple of months. It actually doesn't freeze solid, which means you can spoon out exactly what you need, which I think is very fantastic, right? Now, let me assure you, Curd is exceptionally easy to make. And if you have eggs, sugar, lemons, and butter on hand, you could be making a beautiful batch of curd right now. So for my best curd recipe and all of my chef's tips, just email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. And if you go at uh, to chefjamie.com, by the way, um, you'll find lots of inspiration for curd there. Okay. I hope that I've made you a better cook in your own kitchen by kicking off the show with a curd tutorial. It is now time for food news. Oh, and this excites me. Sometimes it's the little things, right? I am about to make your summer smile, Kit Kat fans. Oh, you know you are. Come on. So am I. But did you know that you can get your Kit Kat fix in an ice cream drumstick now? Oh, yes. Kit Kat lovers rejoice because Kit Kat recently announced that not only are they coming out with a mint dark chocolate bar and an enormous XL size candy bar, they're coming out with a delightful treat for you to indulge in as you relax by the pool this summer. It's a Kit Kat drumstick. And instead of a peanut topping, the new cones have bits of Kit Kat wafers sprinkled into and on top of the wonderful cone and shell. And maybe best of all, the Kit Kat version is said to have a bite of Kit Kat in the bottom of the cone, just like the classic drumstick. Can you hear the thrill in my voice? I haven't tasted it just yet, but I did get the inside scoop for you, pun intended. So please look for Kit Kat drumsticks and then buy me a box, okay? (laughs) And do not touch your dial because there is lots more fabulous food coming up in your radio. Elizabeth Carmel is here, and she's talking steak and cake. Now that is a combo. Also, later in the hour, you'll learn everything you need to know about sustainable seafood. So don't touch your dial. There is informative, entertaining, and scrumptious information ahead, and it abounds. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back. If you are a food enthusiast, well, then this is your show, Sharing Culinary Wisdom, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Simply put, steak and cake, they're just made for each other, right? Like peanut butter and chocolate or chicken and waffles or caramel and sea salt. When Elizabeth Carmel offered a class at New York's Institute of Culinary Education on how to prepare steaks and bake cakes, the class sold out in minutes. And now in her book, appropriately titled Steak and Cake, the new release, she offers more than 100 recipes pairing a steak with a cake. What could be better? I mean, sweet and savory has never been so delicious or decadent. 
You know and love Elizabeth Carmel as the founding executive chef of New York and Washington, D.C.'s Hill County Barbecue and Hill Country Chicken Restaurants. She is America's leading female grilling expert and a native Southern-born baker. And she is back to dish on steak and cake, and I am thrilled. Hi, chef. I'm glad to talk to you again, Elizabeth. Well, I am so excited to talk to you, too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm especially excited to talk about steak and cake because this really was a passion project. Yes. I taught a class at um, the Institute of Culinary Education in New York City for years to home cooks. It's a recreational class on Mm -hmm. a Saturday night. Hmm. And um, I was so gratified to see how empowered learning how to make a steak and bake a cake themselves uh, made people that I thought to myself, I've got to turn this into a book. Well, I think it's brilliant. I have to tell you. I mean, two of my favorite things, I I think most food lovers would say that. I wondered when I first received the book, Elizabeth, because I do think you are a genius. But I do wonder how you go about pairing beef and bundt cake. Like, what is the flavor pairing uh, obsession or the flavor pairing goal in sitting down to mix and match? Well, so to me, every single every single pairing is a, and there are thirty five pairings in the book. Um, uh, is a steak meal with a cake dessert. So I like to look at it as a whole. I like to look at it and say either there's a theme, mm-hmm. like my steak and truffled eggs. Mm. I pair with my latte loaf that has a hazelnut glaze. Oh, I saw so that. So instantly, lots yes. of people love hazelnut lattes, right, in the morning? Right. That they drink them. So those are kind of the prominent flavors of the cake with my very morning-oriented steak and truffled eggs main dish. Yeah, it's perfect. So, so I'm looking at if there's either a theme or if I have a super rich um, Steak, I pair it with a lighter uh, cake, and vice versa. If I have a really rich cake, I pair it with a lighter steak. So, for example, the tomahawk steak that is on the cover, in the book, I pair that with my cinnamon sugar donut puffs. Elizabeth, I am open to that page right now. We were reading each (laughs) other's minds, literally. Well, that's, that's great. And those donut puffs, the reason I call them that is because... They're baked, but they taste like a donut. Mm. But they're very, I make them in a mini muffin tin. They're very small and they're very light. So smart. And and then if you want to up the ante, I give you a recipe for a bourbon spiked dark chocolate ganache dipping sauce for the donuts. Okay. And up the ante, Elizabeth, please. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Everything is balanced. Um, yes. I, I love everything in moderation and everything balanced. So mm. the cakes are not too sweet. You know, um, the steaks are not too rich. Everything to me has to strike that perfect balance so that you want to take another bite. Before I let you go, please tell us about your grandmother's apple cake for those who... Uh- long for a great homemade cake. There is a wonderful story behind it. Okay. So my grandmother Odom's apple cake, it was a very simple cake that my grandmother made all the time. She had the recipe memorized, so she never used a a recipe. 
And um, she would make it every other day in the fall when apples were in season. And it was really, I just loved it. I adored it. And so did my mother. And when she passed away, we looked at each other and we're like, oh, we didn't get the apple cake recipe <laughs> from her. So we looked through all of her things and we couldn't find it. And for years, we were trying every apple cake we could find. And we never, we never could, you know, that taste memory was never there with any of those recipes. Mm-hmm. So we always talked about it. And when I was uh, creating the recipes for this book and getting everything together, I, um, my mother found a recipe box that had been my grandmother's, and I looked through it, and on an index card in her beautiful handwriting, it just said very simply, apple cake. So Amazing. I ran out, I got, the, I got the ingredients, and, you know, I made the cake, and um, I said to my mother, this can't be right. You know, it's so hard to put together. I mean, because the dough is like a cookie dough. It's really stiff, and it's really hard to mix the apples in there. But I, I made it anyway um, just to see, and uh, we let it cool, and um, I sliced into it, and it was the most delicious apple walnut cake. The crumb inside was super moist, super delicious, and the outside had this really addicting, like, crispy, crunchy mm. crust on it. The you know, you make it part. in a bun pan. It's yes. a very simple cake. And the truth is what happens is the apples naturally release their liquid as they bake, and that becomes the liquid in the cake. It's like magic. And, and so it becomes a, very much a cake, not a, not a cookie at all. And um, the other thing is... Every other recipe, I always tweak to make it what I think is the maximum flavor, the maximum moistness. Her recipe had no salt, had no vanilla, which I would never create a recipe without salt and vanilla. And I didn't add it to hers, and it doesn't need it. Mm. And um, the reason that Grandmother Odom's apple cake is the heart of this book is it is the one recipe, bar none, that I make and take to people, and it makes it, make, it takes non-bakers and turns them into bakers, hmm. and it really takes people who don't like me very much, and all of a sudden <laughs> they become my, my best friend. And that is the honest-to-God truth. I, I, I can't believe that's possible, Elizabeth, but I will say in all the years that you have graced this show, you have shared the best tips, been generous with knowledge, and so full of passion, and I am continually grateful. The book is Aww, just extraordinary. It is called Steak and Cake. It is by Elizabeth Carmel. And not only will you find some of the best recipes ever for steak and steakhouse sides and sauces, but all the butter, sugar, eggs, cake you love, you will pick up tricks from a a truly extraordinary Southern baker. What could be better than steak and cake? The new release from Elizabeth Carmel is a winner for any food lover, so please check it out. Available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Please follow Elizabeth for her culinary adventures at Elizabeth Carmel with a K and at Grill Girl. Elizabeth, I can't wait to eat with you again soon, so please come oh, back. Oh, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for loving the book and all of your kind words. It well, really of course. touched me. And, oh, thank um, you. And that's what food communication is all about, to, you know, communication and giving people hugs. Yes, that, and, and I felt it, and we felt it, so thank you. Continued success, Elizabeth. See you soon. Okay, thank, thank you, you so much. much. There's lots more fabulous food in your radio right after this.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. Do you aspire to eat responsibly? More and more, we see labels that certify that the food we're buying is good for the environment. In a recent poll, 80% of Americans who regularly eat fish said that it is very important that the seafood they buy is caught using sustainable methods. Choosing sustainable seafood means that the seafood is harvested in a way that doesn't harm other sea creatures or the ecosystem where it's found. The species aren't overfished, so they can be enjoyed by future generations. And there is a great benefit to the environment, to fishermen, and to consumers like you and I. Jennifer Bushman is one of the food and lifestyle industry's most respected communicators, teachers, and strategists. For more than two decades, she has worked with big brands to better their work and their message. And over the past five years, her focus has been the sustainable seafood community, creating relationships between the aquaculture community like Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch and consumers like you and I. Her culinary school, nothing to it, has been recognized numerous times by the James Beard Foundation, and Jennifer is the author of the best-selling Kitchen Coach cookbook series. She's a very busy lady. She is here today to highlight the movement that is sustainable seafood, so don't touch your dial because you just might learn something. Jennifer, I'm very glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's, yes. it's an interesting topic, isn't it? It's definitely top of mind right now. Yes, it is. And, and I think that that uh, top of mind uh, responsibility and the conversation is ever growing, which makes me very proud as a chef because it's been a lot of years that I've mentioned Monterey Bay, uh, Aquarium, Seafood Watch, and, and so on. But it's gotten far more progressive. It's gotten better. Do you agree? I do agree. And, and I mean, I think a lot of that is the timing around the ocean issues. You're mm. hearing a lot about ocean plastics. Yes. I mean, who hasn't been affected by, you know, don't use a plastic straw any longer. And, you know, the straw was really only the gateway to plastic awareness, which is causing issues in the ocean. And we know that every ocean issue can be drilled down to consumption. So what we demand, what we take out of the ocean, and how that actually impacts the ecosystem uh, is, is, is part of the problem. So it provides us with a great opportunity to really be able to bring this to the forefront. Hmm. I love that you are so passionate about what you do. We had an opportunity to meet just recently, and I, I begged you to come on the radio because I think that this conversation is so very important. Um, share your motivation, if you would, to better the seafood community, the fishermen, uh, the consumer, the chef, all of us. Yeah, and the farmer. And the I farmer. Mean, we can't forget that the, you know, the water farmer is, is also part of this equation and an important part. Okay, wait, I I'm, I'm going to stop you there. I'm sorry. I'd like you just to define water farmer before you go on because I, I mentioned them as fishermen or fisherwomen, uh, but, but uh-huh. what makes a water farmer? So the fisher is the one that's out, hopefully sustainably catching fish, whether fisherman or fisherwoman. The fisher is out in, in a wild fishery. Um, what I will say is harvesting the sea, right? The last wild frontier. Okay. And, um, and the water farmer is the one that is hopefully sustainably raising fish in the same way that we sustainably raise crops and in the same way that we sustainably raise chicken or pork or beef. The, the fish and seafood industry is very unique 
in that um, we have an expectation that we should, or the right, to harvest the wild frontier. But, but when I'm thinking about my steak, I don't sit down in a restaurant and say, is my ribeye wild caught? Right? I mean, did, no. when was the last time you heard anybody saying they went out and wild shot their cow? Right. So, so in, and there are 4.6 million, according to the latest UN Fishery and Aquaculture Report, 4.6 million commercial boats out harvesting the sea. Fish can't grow that fast. No, they can't of course keep up not. with demand. And mm. so what got me passionate about this yes. was the need for us to learn about sustainable aquaculture and how that could provide balance for what we're demanding from the sea as well. I really think it's extraordinary, uh, the plight, because there is a lot of work to be done. And there's a lot of wonderful work being done. You work with water farmers, and thank you for the definition. And I would love for you to highlight some of their work, because there's really fantastic things uh, that are going on. I mean, I know when you and I had a few minutes together, I shared with you near where I live, actually down farther south in San Diego, um, there is a water farmer um, raising mm-hmm. urchin and That's right oh it's so delicious and I, there's something so wonderful about the responsible aspect of what they're doing so there, there is really good work being done there is and I and I think that there's a great differentiator here that we have to um, we really have to um, express you know aquaculture is new it, although we've been raising fish for thousands of years, I mean, King Kamehameha on the island of Kona took, took Kampachi out of the ocean and put it into ponds so that they could grow out those fish and be able to grow new ones without having to work so hard to fish out in the ocean every single day. So we've been farming fish as part of our history for thousands of years, but we have not been doing it at scale for very long, only about 30 years. So people have this feeling about bad aquaculture, you know, muddy, murky, horrible, poop-filled farms where the fish aren't um, healthy, lots of um, misshapen fish and disease-eaten fish and all of that. And what I always say is, you know, aquaculture really is the new kid on the block. And when you're new, you're young, right? A teenager will go out, it'll drink, it'll make all sorts of bad mistakes, he'll, he'll you know, be partying, and, and, and then the teenager grows up and goes to college and, and then ends up going and, and maybe getting a job and getting married and raising a family. And that's, that part of raising a family, seeing your impacts is where aquaculture is now. Yes, there were mistakes that were made, and water farmers have to accept that um, accept that. But now we have amazing sustainability um, solutions, groups like um, Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch that are, that are creating recommendations around what farming, good farming looks like. And the reality is the oceans are 90% fished out. <laughs> there is not enough fish for us to go out and wild capture anymore. Right. So, so the solution of balance is, is wild and sustainably raised fish. Yes, combined. So we have to do something. We know that. Um, And I think that's a a tremendous analogy that you make. We've come to the realization that we have to grow up and take responsibility for the environment. And each of us has a a role in that. We have to play our part. How many uh, water farmers are there across the U.S. doing this 
extraordinary oh, this, work. This would be, I, I couldn't give you a number. I mean, worldwide, I can say that there's much more sustainable aquaculture, these, you know, these great water farmers raising sea vegetables, um, algae, yes. trout, mm-hmm. I mean, thin fish as well as oysters. I mean, uh, you know, the regenerative aquaculture where you put an oyster in the water and it filters the water so that you're seeing these great projects that we talked about, you know, in Hudson Bay, where it's actually helping filter the water off the the, um, island of New York. So we've got all of these great projects happening, and and what we're doing is we're really able to attribute that back to those involved in regenerative aquaculture. And so there are thousands of farms. Um, Some are doing good things. Some are doing bad things, just like you can raise chicken well, you can raise chicken badly. And it's our job as consumers to be aware of what you're buying to support the guys that are doing it right. From a consumer perspective, you alluded to all of us doing our parts. So what can we do? Well, I mean, let's first start off by, um, you know, it's confusing, right? You walk up to the fish case, there's a lot of fish there, and the only labeling on it usually is the price, the species, and the country of origin. The the source, right. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's required by law. Um, on a menu, it's a little bit murkier, right? The the waters are a little muddier. I mean, if you're buying, if you're ordering something like a salmon dish, it might be grilled salmon with um, arugula chimichurri. It, it doesn't say necessarily where the, the salmon comes from. Well, that that's really the bottom line. So please don't go anywhere because I, I would like to continue this conversation. When we come back, more with Jennifer Bushman as we talk about Uh, sustainable seafood and aquaculture and the future of our oceans. Don't touch your dial, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, welcome back. If you are a fish lover, well then your behavior has to change to ensure the vitality of our oceans and the long-term availability of fish in our diets. And Jennifer Bushman is an extraordinary advocate for that. We're continuing our conversation on sustainable aquaculture. And more and more is a specification as to where the fish came from. Oftentimes the fisherman or the water farmer is being noted. And by the way, I really like that. If we're going to be... We have to. We have to to tell that story of provenance. If we're going to be responsible, yes. Yes. And let me tell you, demand it more and more because the chef friends that you and I have that are calling out the Verlasso salmons of the world, that it's river and trout, hog island oyster, that call out is few and far between. 
And I can tell you retailers are very hesitant to call out the name of the farm, although they'll call out the farm in the produce department and they'll call out the farm in the meat department. That's true. Go look at your fish and seafood department. It's not there. Hmm. Um, Whole Foods is a big one that refuses to put the provenance of the farm in the fish and seafood case. But we're making strides. What I will say is download the Seafood Watch app. Um, there, you'll find it on the App Store. And what you, all you have to do when you have that app is type in the species and the country of origin, and the ratings will pop up, and it'll be like a stoplight, green, yellow, or red. And if it's, the rating is green, you can eat that fish, whether it's wild-caught or farmed, all day long. It's a well-managed fishery. It's a mm-hmm. well-managed farm. If it's yellow, it means maybe the fishery needs improvement or we have to be careful or they're doing things right on the farm, but there's still things that they can improve upon. And red means never, ever order it, buy it, eat it, that this is maybe a fish that's endangered like a bluefin tuna mm-hmm. or an issue on the farm where the, where the farming practices are very depleted. Okay, so that means that technology has bettered us because when I started looking into Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, the website was updated. I think it was a challenge for them to to gather the information. You were able to uh, find that little paper booklet, right, that you were supposed to carry right, with you. Card. Yep. <laughs> yes. The Seafood Watch card. They've given out 70 million of those, by the way. Wow. But no, everything is much improved and much more up to date if you use the app on your phone. Yeah, very smart. And there are other organizations that you support and that you tell us to be aware of. There is a stewardship council for aquaculture and marine uh, information, right? James Beard, uh, the organization that you and I are proud to be involved with from the culinary community perspective, has a smart catch program. Um, Talk about a couple of others, if you would, because there are many great people and places that are, uh, along with you, uh, pushing this cause to be better. Yeah, I mean, again, if everything drills down to what we consume and that we can make significant environmental impacts just by the awareness of asking the question, where does our food come from? Um, the, the organizations that support that effort for you to get information um, are significant, and they're doing great work. There's another organization called Fish Choice. And when you get on the Fish Choice website or app, it gives you all kinds of information. And, Jamie, including cool stuff like what does the fish taste like and how is it best cooked? I love so it. that maybe instead of today you're buying you're buying your salmon, maybe tomorrow you're looking at the fish case and you're buying that beautiful corvina because you know that it's a mild tasting fish that will cook up in a similar way to say halibut. Oh, so so fish choice is great. Yeah, um, very smart. I love supporting James Beard Smart Catch. That was a Paul Allen project from Microsoft. He gave them this as a gift, and it gives you the restaurants that are supporting sustainable sourcing so that you know when you go somewhere, no matter what you eat on the menu, it's yellow or green by Seafood Watch. I'm very proud to be able to support Lend a Voice uh, to assure that we have viable options for the future. And again, kudos to you on your very good work. You can follow Jennifer Bushman, jenniferbushman.com. You'll find all her social media 
connections there as well. And stay tuned because this show brings you a whole world of fabulous food, but we all have to do our part in order to maintain it. And I will continue to bring to you and aspire to bring you the greatest culinary thinkers, those that are making a difference and to arm you with the knowledge so that we can all eat well. That's what it's all about. Jennifer, thank you. I can't wait to see you again. Uh, And I hope that you'll come back and continue uh, to uh, give us an update on your monitoring of the progressive movement that is sustainable aquaculture. And thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it and write email. Let's talk about it. There are a lot of questions out there. We're going to all be learning together. You're a tremendous advocate. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of enlightening culinary conversation. Before you go, take a taste of my last bite, will you? Want to make French toast in a jiffy? I always end this show with a three, four, or five ingredient quick fix recipe. And I have a shortcut for really scrumptious French toast that is rich and satisfying. You make a simple custard, right? With eggs and milk and some sugar and aromatics. But oftentimes it can get cumbersome, especially if you're feeding French toast to a crowd. So did you know that velvety ice cream is the perfect shortcut for that custard? I know. I think it's brilliant too. I make a three ingredient French toast and you will need a pint of good quality, preferably vanilla bean or any vanilla of your choice, ice cream. You will need it melted or you can leave it in the fridge instead of the freezer. Then you'll need some thick slices of brioche or challah and good quality unsalted butter. I pour the ice cream not gelato, by the way, real good, rich vanilla ice cream into a baking dish. And I add the bread and turn it to coat and I let it sit for a few minutes until it's saturated, but not soggy. And then I pan saute it in good quality butter. And I'll keep the French toast warm in a 250 degree oven until I've gotten through all my thick slices. I drizzle with Uh, Grade B maple syrup, my maple syrup of choice, topped with some fresh berries and breakfast or brunch. Oh, you've got it made. I will post my three ingredient French toast recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend where I promise you there is lots more fabulous food in my arsenal that I can't wait to share. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening. A happy Mother's Day to all and a happy Mother's Day to my mom, Lana. I love you. Until next weekend, I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 